everyone. Welcome to the fifth episode of Tea with Mama Cash, because feminist activism works. With your hosts, Zora Musa and Happy Monday Kinyili. Hi, I'm Zora. I'm the executive director at Mama Cash, and I'm really excited because after this podcast, I mean, of course, this podcast is super exciting, but after this podcast, I get to go on a boat. And I'm Happy, the director of programs at Mama Cash, and I've been listening to this really great podcast, which if you haven't listened to it yet, please do. It's The Wildness with Tiffin Manda. Happy, I have a question for you. Mm -hmm. It's a big one. Okay. In what ways has colonialism played a role in your life? Well, if I wasn't colonized, sweet Jesus, I would not be speaking to you in English. (laughs) Let's start there. Um, So basically, I think I grew up in a context, in a country that was named as post-colonial or recently independent, kind of recent. There's ways in which colonialism was very present, but never discussed. So the language in which we operated, the fact that we had presidents and cabinets and, you know, all the infrastructure of government, at the same time, a complete erosion of our own systems of being, of the Kamba people. And I unfortunately speak Kamba least fluently of all the languages that I speak. I don't as well as deeply know the heritage of, say, how we thought about sexuality. I've had stories about it. The food that we eat is not the food I imagine my ancestors were eating. And not to say that we wouldn't perhaps have had some kind of mingling of cultures, but, you know, mingling of cultures and something getting dumped on your head, totally different. What about you? What ways has colonialism played a role in your life? Uh, Well, I, I come from, I'm descended from people that were colonized, but I'm dislocated from that. I was born in a country that did the colonizing, and then I grew up in a country that was colonized and didn't recognize it as such, and thought of itself as neither the colonized nor the colonizer, Mm -hmm. as a country, as a a national story, Mm -hmm. which is Canada, by the way, everybody. I grew up in Canada, (laughs) uh, and I was born in the UK, a very famous colonizer you may have heard of. Mm. So my relationship, I guess, is kind of a constant awareness of being between places mm-hmm. in terms of living on colonized land, being a member of a colonizing community in that I was non-Indigenous in Canada, but being mm. descended from people that were also colonized. And the reason I was in the UK or in Canada came from the displacement that came out of being colonized mm-hmm. in those places. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I think when I have conversations with other black folk in other parts of the continent, uh, sorry, of the world. So I grew up on the continent. When I, when I say the continent, I mean just, you know, there's only one, Africa. The rest are examples. Oops, I said it. <laughs> um, so I grew up on the continent and I talk to other black folk in other parts of the world. I find it very interesting, the migration that has been forced because of colonialism and how people experience or understand their their immediate localities as a result of. So, for example, black folk who migrated in, say, the 60s, 70s to the UK from the continent and how they talk about their location and how then their subsequent generations talk about it. So I have a really close friend who says, grew up in the UK and everybody around them is like, you're British, you're British. No, I'm not. They didn't want me here. They colonized me, kicked me out of my land, brought me here, and then they don't want me here. So why would I say I'm British? And I... Yeah, I just find I find it such a mind fuck the ongoing results of what colonialism continues to do in people's very almost immediate and everyday I'm doing like a gesture of inside themselves way of being. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So 
in case you haven't guessed yet, this episode of our Tea with Mama Cash podcast is about decolonization. And we're going to be talking about decolonizing feminism. What does that mean? Why does it matter? How do we do it? And how do some of the activities that Mama Cash is every day involved in relate to colonialism and decolonization? So activism, money, development, aid, things like that. And we'll ask ourselves a big question. If we decolonize feminism, are we done? If we decolonize feminism, do you think we're done with the feminist project? I'm going to go ahead and say no. I'm going to be bold and say no, no, we are not. It's really important to talk about it. And maybe we can start with answering that question. Why would we be talking about decolonization on a podcast about feminism? Mm -hmm. And our colleague in prepping for this conversation had a really good example that part of feminism is about breaking down the gender binary. And the idea of a gender binary exists so pervasively because a few countries that colonized many other countries in the world had this idea about a gender binary and exported that and forced that on to many, many other lands and peoples. And so other ideas about gender that were not binary, that allowed more fluidity, that proposed other options and alternatives have been erased, have literally been erased, Mm -hmm. have been no longer spoken about. We've lost the words we used to have for them. We don't have those languages anymore. They've been, laws have been written to create and enforce a particular binary where other customs and traditions used to offer other options. So for me, that's a really good example of why decolonization as a feminist project is important, but also decolonizing feminism is important Mm -hmm. because our ideas about feminism sit within us and we have been globally subjected to colonialized ideas. Mm-hmm. Why would we talk about this? Why are we talking about decolonizing in a podcast on feminism? The thought that comes to my head is history lessons. So I remember the history class when we learned about what what was colonialism about. What my history book said, it was about market, it was about raw material, and it was about labor and land, sorry, four things and land. So the colonial folks were like, we want labor. We want to be able to produce things because it was around the time of capitalism starting to, you know, become the kind of capitalism that we understand right now and figuring out we want to be able to produce and to do that, we need people. And I think for feminists, we have spent a lot of time talking about women's labor both reproductive and productive labor that is um, undervalued and invisible in other cases. And I think part of that logic comes from colonialism, where to enable the production that was necessary for the colonizers to continue to be colonizers, they needed women's labor to be reproductive primarily, and if productive, productive in ways that was invisible and not upheld. And for me, that's that's another reason why feminism must fundamentally be about decolonial work. And again, yes, we must be decolonizing feminist understandings of labor because I see the logic still reproduced in the world, even within feminist spaces of whose labor is labor. For example, sex workers, that's not understood as labor. 
and it's tied to the colonial ideas of where some colonial masters did not want sex to be a commodity and therefore control the sexuality of women. And now that there's people who are working around saying, not only do I own and control my sexuality, I want to sell it, then there's some feminists who have feelings about that because I would say it still fits into a colonial framework. That is a interesting and controversial statement you have just made, and I would like to think about that. Um, that could be what, where it's coming from, some of the resistance around recognizing sex workers' work as being from a colonialized mindset. To get a bit concrete about sexuality, for example, and even about gender, I, I refer to the gender binary. What do I mean? I mean literally that we think there are men and women and that's it. Mm -hmm. And we know that to be not true. And in other times and places, that truth has just been a given. And the fact that we have to contest that now and reintroduce it as some kind of bold, innovative idea mm -hmm. for me is like, what? Yeah. Why, what? What are we doing there? And I feel kind of the same way about sexuality. The idea that to be not heterosexual is some kind of really remarkable thing right? Mm. We've had to fight for recognition, existence, extension of rights. And at other times and places for us as peoples, it's just been normal. It's been totally normal. And I think part of it for me is that the reason we want to also decolonize feminism is we're trying to challenge norms, right? We're trying to change social norms, but our possibilities for thinking about what could be another normal mm -hmm. are so limited because we're trying to just resist from a place of already having such limited options. We've lost so much mm -hmm. in the colonizing processes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think the process of, I call it the fissure, right? The, the moment that colonialism lands and creates a fissure between what was and what is to come and how there is such amazing work that is trying to resist even that narrative, right? And when I think of sexuality, I know of all these people who are living in lands that have been colonized who are excavating and finding the histories of sexuality that have existed in those lands prior to colonialism. Not to say that those histories are devoid of any forms of oppression, no, but an act of reclaiming in and of itself, saying, I've said before, I'm of the Kamba people, and I have two great aunts who are married to women. There's a whole narrative now about how that isn't about homosexuality, but it's something else. I'm like, it might be all those other things about reproduction, but they went to their house at night together. Full stop. <laughs> what did they do when they're there? And the, the process of reclaiming it and saying this is part of our history, this is who we are, is the resistance to colonialism and the work of trying to create those new normals and it's beautiful and I have a word inside me that I can't find but there's something I find about that work and I am one of those people who says like I carry in me what my ancestors were and there's nothing not even colonialism can take that away and I just need to reach for that and that is that act of reaching for what our ancestors gave to us that we carry in us and we pass on to our children um, and not there's no oppressive factor that is bigger than that what our ancestors gave us. I'm really interested in the idea that there's nothing stronger than what our ancestors gave us and that's inside of us. And that made me think about how we would be different if our trajectories hadn't been interrupted. Mm. And I, I mean, to a degree, that's, it's a philosophical question. Yeah. And interaction 
isn't inherently negative. There are ways we could have seen each other and been with each other in the past that were not exploitive, that were not colonizing Mm -hmm. and still affected each other's trajectories, but in a very different way, in a way where there was more choice and options, of course. And it makes me think a little bit about the kind of work that Mama Cash is doing, where we we exist as a funder and as a funder that fundraises. Mm. And as a feminist organization trying to do that, some of the sources from which we fundraise from were actively engaged in those colonial processes and have not necessarily actively stepped out of that. Mm -hmm. How do you sit with that? Very uncomfortably (laughs) is that is a quick answer. I think the result of many years of colonization and extraction has shifted resources from the people actually have the resources to places where the resources are not. And the extraction of those resources has created wealth right now in this moment in history in the North and economic exploitation in the South. I think of Mama Cash's role stepping into that to be about redistributing resources. So taking from these, as a result of extraction, resource-rich spaces and taking to those places that are naturally resource-rich a lot of times. I think that work needs to be done. And I think that there is a cost to doing that work. And I want Mama Cash to pay that cost so that the partners we work with don't have to pay as heavy a cost. And some of it could just be the being able to politically maneuver in ways that Mama Cash cannot because we're in relationship with some of these governments. That creates filters through which we have to speak. But our partners who are not in relationship with those governments can hold those governments to account. So Mama Cash can absorb that. I think tied to that is even how a lot of this resource moves from governments to Mama Cash and then to our grantee partners has a lot of administrative burden because of many things that I think are part of the colonial logic. So filling out like I remember it was one of our partners saying how they had to fill out like 500 pages by the time they printed out the application I think it was for EU funding it was like 500 pages not every organization should need to do that to get the money that is theirs so Mama Cash can fill out that 500 page application so that our partners don't have to do it and that's the political work I think that Mama Cash does in this space and I sit with that discomfort, because I think somebody does need to do that work, and I would want it to be Mama Cash doing that work. Um, what about you? How do you sit with this question? You're heading an organization that is called A Feminist, and B is fundraising from you know sources that continue to be engaged in colonial logics. Yeah, I think it's safe to say I sit uncomfortably <laughs> with it as well. And one of my particular challenges, let's call it, is that, so Mama Cash gets funding from three main sources, private individuals, other foundations, and then governments. Right now, we're mostly talking about governments. Mm -hmm. But there are things to say about the wealth that comes from foundations and private individuals that are also implicated in colonization. Mm -hmm. I'll park that for now, but leave it as a thought. Mm -hmm. In terms of governments, there's a thing happening where the funding we receive from governments right now is usually coming from the development, the aid budget, right? The international development budget Mm -hmm. called aid. And the amount of funding available in that pot, in the aid pot, is so vastly dwarfed Mm -hmm. by the other kinds of funding that actually act not infrequently against the interests 
of what that aid money is trying to fund. Mm -hmm. So, for example, it exists and is sort of being introduced in a few different governments now that the aid and the trade budget sit together in one ministry. And the aid budget is just a very small fraction of the total ministry's budget. And the trade budget is huge. The interests, the trade interests of that government have a completely different logic sometimes from the aid interests. Mm -hmm. They're sitting in the same ministry. So they're incoherent with each other, right? They have contradictions with each other in terms of what's the mission of that ministry. Mm -hmm. But also practical implications when, for example, we know of experiences where we've been supporting partners who are then challenging Dutch trade interests. We're funded by the Dutch government. And the Dutch government's trade interests are resulting in violations of human rights Mm -hmm. in countries. So they're also funding us. They're funding us to support partners who then say, hello, we have a problem here. On one level, you could say, well, that's good. They're up for funding partners who will challenge them. Mm -hmm. And that is true. That is actually a good thing. But the level of funding available on the aid side is so small compared to what the trade side has that it's a it's kind of a lost Mm -hmm. battle before you begin. Mm So what we've been talking about before around trade and aid raises feelings for me, I have to say. And particularly because in aid, there's so much conversation around corruption and trying to ensure that the funding that is given through aid does the thing it's supposed to do and doesn't go into individual people's pockets. And there's so much that has been constructed, I would say, in the aid industry to ensure that that doesn't happen. So what I was saying about the barriers to accessing this funding is part of that mechanism, as well as reporting and having the log frames and the reports that are about some government entities will need you to produce receipts to justify the expenditure and it blows my mind whenever I think about it. I'm like, it's our money. Why are you telling us to do all these things and it's our money? I think some of our listeners may have feelings about me saying that, but I really do think it is because it is a result of extraction that this wealth sits where it does. And because we're so aware of this at Mama Cash in the logic that makes sure that the barriers are raised, we've done, I would like to say, quite a bit of thinking and um work to ensure we're doing things differently. And Zora, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about from where you're seated, what are the things you see about how Mama Cash works, where we're doing things differently so we don't feed into the aid logic. And even if we do receive some of this money, we don't pass that burden on to our partners. Yeah, I think there are a few things that I'm interested in in how we do them as Mama Cash. So I think the first thing is that we try to interrupt the conversation that the work we do is development work. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people think that Mama Cash exists to help those poor women over there. And we have pretty consistent messaging and arguments for why that isn't actually what we do and why we, for example, do fund in the Global North why we think there's work to be done here in the Netherlands on women's rights, for example, and why we take a a movement building approach and a human rights approach and not a development approach, not the idea that this is charity Mm -hmm. for people, this is giving them a leg up, that we're trying to compensate for missing services like access to healthcare or something like this. We are trying to change power dynamics, and we do that through funding partners who are engaged in activism. So that's, that's one of the things. And I think 
the thing I'm kind of proud of in terms of another thing that we do that's related to that is who we fund, Mm. the choices we make about who we fund. And we're really explicit and firm about funding what we call self-led groups and self-led collectives and organizations. And what we mean by that is that we fund groups of people who are made up of the people on whose behalf they're advocating. So for example, if it's a migrant women's group, they're working on migrant women's rights, then it's led by migrant women. Mm -hmm. If it's a group working on trans people's rights, it's led by trans people. It's not, for example, a group of non-disabled women or women without disabilities than trying to do work on behalf of disabled women or women with disabilities. And it's a core criteria, for example, in our funding. We don't Mm -hmm. fund groups that aren't self-led. That's the idea. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an important step. Mm -hmm. A third thing I would mention is the way we fundraise. And I agree with you, and we talked about it in a previous podcast, for those of you who have been following closely, about how I view money as a tool. And I have a particular thing around redistribution, that this is a kind of restitution role that Mama Cash is playing around taking the money from where it sits now because of the reasons you discussed and rechanneling that back to places it was extracted from as one of the things that Mama Cash does. But I also think about it in terms of how we partner, who we partner with for our fundraising. So Mama Cash has made a particular effort in our last few major fundraising efforts to partner with other women's funds that are led from and based in the global south to fundraise from global north actors, global north funders, and in some cases even had arranged it so that the fund from the global south is the lead partner. So for example, our GAGA program, our Global Alliance for Green and Gender Action, the program we do that's linking environmental justice and women's rights movements. We do that in collaboration with the Central American Women's Fund based in Central America, and they're the lead Mm -hmm. partner. I think those are some examples of things we've been doing to try to flip the script a little bit. Mm -hmm. You now lead our program area. Do you have examples? Yeah, I mean, a lot, really. Mostly you're leading the program area (laughs) as the director. Can you tell us a little bit about how you relate to this question that you've asked me? I think a a lot of the things you say, I definitely agree with the things that we're doing. And... There's one of the things I, I would like us to continue to do, because we do do it and I would like us to continue to do it and become much better at it, is actually learning from our partners who often have their lives on the line and are the ones who are engaging with the violence that is a result of colonialism. And they tell us we need to do so that we can better support them where they're at. Like I said, I think we do do it. I'm not saying like we don't. I think there's still room for us to improve because, you know, life happens, we get busy, we deprioritize sometimes conversations or we decide certain things are more important than others. And one of the things I would love for us to figure out into the future is how could we actually have more of our partners involved in the decision making around the resourcing that we are able to fundraise so that it's not the staff of Mama Cash seated in the office in Amsterdam making these decisions, but we are in conversation with and um, the actual decision making sits somewhere else. I think the work around movement building. So Mama Cash is a fund that deeply uses the movement building lens and we see ourselves as part of these many movements and we're the fundraising arm. But I think also something we should do much better on is figuring out how do we shift other resources, knowledge, networks, um, skills to our partners who are doing the work. So the work we call accompaniment. How can we think about providing accompaniment support to the movements that we are part of? We are quite good, I think, at uh, providing accompaniment to our grantee partners when and where we can. 
And I would love for us to think with other women's funds about how do we accompany or provide accompaniment support to the movements that we are part of. And all this is thinking into the future. At the same time, I think I would love for us to, and this is a question to you, Zora, is how can we be constantly learning and unlearning the colonial logics that inform Amakasha's work so that we can do the things that we're already doing. We dig deeper and become a much stronger ally and partner in the struggle for liberation. I think that's what was resonating in what you were just speaking about as something we need to do around incorporate a way of recognizing better or making that part of our practice, the expertise that our partners hold around how to do the work because they're in not our location, because they're in the other location. And to use... Mm -hmm colonialized language, right, where we're trying to decolonize ideas about who's at the center and who's at the margin, to bring into the center those who have been at the margin, which is a particular thing that Mamakash does, right? We talk about supporting those who have been deliberately marginalized, explicitly excluded, and so on. But how do we actually not just fund those folks, Mm -hmm. but have them drive our strategy, our thinking, our ideas, and... Mm -hmm. I think this is this is where we still have some way to go because we sit where we sit. So we recruit how we recruit based on who can come work for us. And, you know, even how we read a particular application, I read it with my eyes, which are the eyes that they are and what I've grown up in, in terms of how I've I'm dealing with colonization. Right. So how do we actually invite other knowledges and other expertises and other ways of being and doing and knowing? Mm-hmm institutionally into the organization. I think that's where we still need some work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And be part of the process of constantly unlearning, even in partnership and in collaboration with our partners. Yeah, I think so. Thank you all so much for always listening. Zora and I are definitely enjoying these conversations and we'd love to hear from you to keep the conversation going. What did you like? What do you feel was missing? What do you want to hear about next? What do you want us to not talk about next time? Please get back to us. You can find us on the internet on all usual social media channels and you can also subscribe or leave a comment or review on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts or iTunes. All of that will help us reach more people and continue the conversation. So these are your hosts. Zora Musa and Happy Monday King Lee. Signing, Signing off until, until the next time. This podcast was produced by Amanda Giggler and Sophia Sewell, our colleagues at Mama Cash, in collaboration with the fabulous Natalia Tchuki. We recorded this episode in Studio Amsterdam with help from Nick DeWitt, who also did the audio post-production. 